Maker's Mark Bourbon is aged to taste in Loretto, Kentucky. The Samuels family uses locally grown soft red winter wheat and sources water from a lake on the distillery's campus. Every Maker's Mark label is printed and die cut by hand on an antique press, and each bottle is hand dipped in their signature red wax. All the details matter when distilling quality bourbon. Since Maker's Mark sold its first case of bourbon to the Keeneland Racecourse in Lexington, they have perfected the craft of distilling American whiskey. For their dedication to making great bourbon and for their support of the Southern Foodways Alliance, we thank them. Maker's Mark crafts their bourbon carefully. Please enjoy it that way. If you do the math on the federal minimum wage, which is $7.25 an hour, a full-time worker will make just over $15,000 annually if that worker takes no holidays. The minimum wage puts full-time workers below the poverty line. It may sound obvious, but the question remains, should the minimum wage be enough for a person to live on? I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Sarah Camp Milam. So, Sarah Camp, while the rest of us were inside recovering from COVID, Florida workers won the fight for 15. Sort of. Yeah, sort of. What they actually won was a $10 minimum wage and the right for that minimum to increase a dollar a year every year until it hits $15 or until 2026, whichever comes first. Florida is one of seven states to adopt this approach to the minimum wage increase. And what happens in Florida matters deeply to the rest of the South and really to the rest of the country. Yes. Florida-based employers like the Darden Restaurant Group, think Olive Garden and Cheddar's, and then Disney, parent company for ESPN. And owner of George Lucas's soul. Yeah, they employ <laughs> nearly as many folks outside of the state as they do within its borders. So what happens in Florida, for good or bad, never stays in Florida. Take that advice, guys. <laughs> You're listening to Gravy. 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 <laughs> a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance, Gravy tells stories of the changing American South. Sarah Holtz has our story. Alex Harris has been working multiple jobs his entire professional life. These days, he's balancing a full-time job at IHOP with landscaping work on his off days. I'm working as hard as I can, and I'm still coming home to lights being cut off. I'm still coming home to food shortages. I'm still coming home to possibly not even having a way to get to work the next day. That doesn't make sense to me. And anybody who thinks that's okay, then they don't really value people. Alex is 25 and lives in Tampa, Florida. Though he's worked at IHOP for about two years, he still doesn't have benefits like paid leave. Before IHOP, he worked at Waffle House. Before that, it was Checkers Drive-In. The hours have always been long, the pay always minimum wage, or close to it. Until September 30th, 2021, that was $3.02 for tipped workers, and $8.65 for non-tipped workers. Now Alex earns $6.98 per hour plus tips. The current minimum wage in Florida is $10 an hour for non-tipped workers. It's slated to increase by a dollar each year until 2026, when it will settle at $15. The tipped wage will increase incrementally as well. Each of these dollars symbolizes a hard-won victory for minimum wage workers, and especially for Alex. 
He's a leader in a national labor campaign called the Fight for 15. Though there are countless labor issues associated with restaurant work, from wage theft to sexual harassment, the minimum wage is a concrete area to affect change. Alex told me, because it improves material conditions for hourly workers in every industry. Historically, it's also been a difficult thing to change. I asked Matthew Simmons for some background on this history. He's a labor historian at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia, and he studied the unique challenges among low-wage workers in Florida. So specifically thinking about, you know, minimum wage in Florida, minimum wage in the American South generally, it's been challenging to try to raise um, minimum wage in states in the American South. Uh, A lot of that's due to kind of the legacy of slavery and kind of racial inequality and pushback against, you know, unionization and things like that. The abolition of slavery catalyzed the beginning of sharecropping and convict labor in the South. While both Black and white Southerners worked as sharecroppers across the region, Black Southerners were disproportionately marginalized by these systems. This pattern continued through the Great Depression, when President Franklin D. Roosevelt enacted the New Deal. To pass that historic set of reforms, Roosevelt had to build consensus within his own Democratic Party, which at that time included both social progressives and Southern segregationists. The New Deal generated millions of jobs, but still left 9 million American laborers, more than 17% of the workforce at that time, unemployed at the end of 1939. And, most relevant to this conversation, another piece of New Deal legislation created the minimum wage. In 1938, the original minimum wage was 25 cents an hour. When adjusted for inflation, that's just under $5. So even when it was first established, the minimum wage was not a living wage. If you think about the minimum wage historically, initially it's supposed to be connected to inflation and kind of go up, you know, as inflation goes up. Because as we all know, inflation kind of eats away at buying power. A 1966 amendment to federal minimum wage law also created a precarious situation for tipped workers who aren't entitled to $7.25 an hour and must rely on tips to get there. But that doesn't always happen and employers don't always make up the difference. And when the minimum wage stays the same year after year, workers actually slip down the economic ladder. If the minimum wage had increased the way it was originally intended to, it should be a lot higher than it is today. What we see happening, though, over the course of time is it gets decoupled from inflation. So at its high point, minimum wage in 1968 was actually the equivalent to around $12 an hour today. Um, So much higher than kind of the national minimum wage. And if it was keeping up with, say, inflation and even productivity gains, uh, it it might even be higher than, say, $15 an hour. It could be as high as $20 an hour if you're kind of factoring in those other things. Matthew also told me that the minimum wage has been difficult to change since the rise of so-called Reaganomics in the 1980s, an era when trickle-down economics widened the gap between the rich and poor. Reagan famously remarked that half a loaf is better than none. And by his policies, the minimum wage stagnated until 2012, when the Fight for 15 formed. For Alex, the need to organize solidified when he realized the massive gulf between worker wages and executive salaries. In 2020, the CEO of McDonald's made almost $11 million. Alex's wages haven't increased significantly since he entered the workforce at 18. Minimum wage didn't go up for a decade, even though 
gas prices and the cost of living continue to increase. Um, that doesn't make any sense to me. And at the same time, what I tell people is, if you was to take 5% of what a CEO makes every year, you can give a raise to every last one of your workers and not have to stress. If McDonald's CEO took 5%, 10%, probably even 1% of the money that they make, they'll be able to change so many people's lives. Alex has been organizing for the past seven years while maintaining two jobs. He's canvassed, phone banked, participated in walkouts, and collaborated with workers across the country. It's not always easy to recruit other minimum wage workers. And as Matthew reminded me, that's because they're often too worried about tomorrow to think about long-term systemic changes. A lot of these folks, you know, they're working maybe more than one job. And so they just barely have time to think about, you know, their day-to-day lives, you know, running from one place to another place, just trying to put food on the table. So oftentimes it's hard to engage with that group just because they are so busy and they are just kind of thinking about one day to the next. Florida's also an unusual case, a state with an enormous immigrant workforce. So Florida's kind of unique in that it It's very much a Southern state, and yet it's not a Southern state, largely because of the way the Southern part of the state develops. Uh, You know, thinking about like human immigration, for example, you know, Puerto Rican immigration, all of these kind of Caribbean groups coming into South Florida, whereas in kind of, you know, North Florida, um, it's kind of a traditional Southern state in terms of settlement patterns. uh, What we see happening in Florida, you know, over time is a lot of kind of low wage waiver, thinking specifically about farm workers, either being excluded from minimum wage, you know, at the national level, or oftentimes a lot of this work being done by undocumented individuals who are paid under the table, right? So there's also an issue there as well. I could devote an entire story to agricultural workers. But just as the Fight for 15 has been advocating for fast food workers' rights for the past several years, other groups, like the Coalition of Immokalee Workers, have campaigned to increase farmworker pay since the early 1990s. Generally, the mistreatment of workers is a form of economic and social oppression that reinforces racist and anti-immigrant ideologies. The stagnant minimum wage in the South shows how little has changed. The similarities to it, to end up having a group of people make less money than others while at the same time doing the same job and get fired reminds me of Jim Crow. It reminds me of how people are put into horrible conditions and put into horrible uh, situations. And I can just imagine individuals working jobs, getting paid less, and being too afraid to speak up for themselves because they're still trying to get past the training stage to even keep a job. So. To do that, I feel like it'll install fear and it'll make people not want to stand up for themselves anymore. So we're just trying to put a stop to that. How do Alex and his group plan to put a stop to unlivable wages? We'll find out when we come back. But first... Are you having friends over for a backyard barbecue or gearing up for a tailgate anytime soon? If so, Lodge's new Sportsman's Pro Cast Iron Grill can handle the heat. The enhanced fan favorite has a streamlined design that makes for hassle-free assembly and cleanup. Dual air vents let you control the heat evenly as you cook your steak, burger, or brat. Go to LodgeCastIron.com to purchase the Sportsman's Pro Cast Iron Grill for your next cookout. For their support of the Southern Food Waste Alliance and the Scravy Podcast, we thank Lodge Cast Iron. 
Alex began organizing with the Fight for 15 long before the pandemic. Florida didn't go into quarantine until April of 2020, weeks after much of the rest of the country. And by then, Alex was working at Checkers Drive-In, where he says that working conditions felt like an outright health risk. Checkers did not issue us masks when, when masks was mandatory at first. And then when they did give us masks, it was literally, if you was to pull your mask a little too hard, it would rip. It felt like a thin piece of cloth that they just put holes on the side for your ear hole, and that was it. It didn't protect us from nothing, and we complained about it, and checkers didn't care. So eventually, we um, end up showing in the video of how cheap the masks are and various things like that, and it made the, the managers and the higher-ups upset. Unfortunately, says Alex, advocating for their needs did little to change the attitude of management. If you were sick, they did not make sure that you was out for a week or two. They said, well, if you're sick, well, as soon as you think you feel better, we need you to come back to work. And if you're going to be out for multiple, multiple days, we need a doctor note. And if you don't get a doctor note, you can't return. And it was individuals who was coughing and sick. And we found out that one of our workers ended up having COVID. And the manager didn't tell us because at that time, if a worker got COVID, you had to shut down and make sure that everyone quarantined and they didn't want to lose money in their business. So they didn't tell us. So in the beginning, it was very rough. Alex ended up quitting his job at Checkers and moving over to Waffle House. It wasn't a vast improvement. Staffing shortages were widespread. But the workers at Waffle House had already started to exert their collective bargaining power. Their demands for safer conditions and a $15 wage culminated in a walkout last winter. This wasn't Alex's first walkout, but he told me that this one was deeply empowering. It's a feeling that you have to experience as a worker where when management is not valuing you, for you to walk off of a job because you're being disrespected and then to have lawyers or people who have your back or a union that has your back to then say you're not going to be fired and this problem has to be fixed before this worker can return. you also going to make sure that they're paid. It's a blessing. And in my situation, to be able to have walk-offs because we're not being valued to see how the store starts to struggle and everything just breaks down to show you how much power is a worker that you really have. That That's the true motivation, I feel. Under Florida's Minimum Wage Initiative, or Amendment 2, workers like Alex will see their hourly pay increase to $15 in 2026. But that's still a few years from now. Two years into the pandemic, the need to make a livable wage means more than it ever has in Alex's lifetime. Truthfully, it's monumental for me because there are major victories that affects everyone. But not everyone in Florida supports the minimum wage increase. A group of restaurateurs and other business owners feel it might be bad for the pandemic-battered economy. My name is Samantha Paget, and I'm the general counsel for the Florida Restaurant and Lodging Association. Samantha's group, the FRLA, represents 10,000 restaurant owners, franchises, hoteliers, and theme parks. Many members are independent restaurateurs, but big names include Marriott, Outback Steakhouse, and a Florida theme park you may have heard of, Disney World. The association contributed funds to a campaign against Amendment 2, she says, because it threatens the businesses that bolster tourism in Florida. 
it caused us a great deal of concern due to its uh, potential impact on labor costs and overall financial impact to restaurants and hotels and other industries that, that employ minimum wage employees, the impact it would have on the ability of less skilled or less attractive employees to have entrance into those industries, those who aren't very experienced, those who are much younger, for example, and also the impact that it would have to consumers in terms of increased prices. It's true. Higher wages mean that food will have to cost more. Because FRLA is made up of so many different companies, large and small, there's no one-size-fits-all wage that will carry both business owners and employees through this transition, especially in a state that relies so heavily on tourism. Now that Florida is back open and businesses are struggling to attract lower-wage workers, restaurateurs have been offering incentives, like hourly pay that's well above minimum wage, and starting bonuses. Samantha told me that while that's a temporary situation, a permanent increase to the minimum wage would alter the pay structure in the service industry. I think the concern with something like Amendment 2 is we've raised the floor. And so forever after, we have raised the cost of of labor. And over the next two years, it's going to go up and up and up until we hit 15 in 2026. And that's the floor and it will never go beneath that. That's a problem for some restaurant owners, but a solution for countless workers. If the cost of labor becomes permanently higher, restaurateurs may have to rethink their business plans. Yet others are hopeful that higher wages will disrupt patterns of exploitation, and that can make the industry more sustainable. Some restaurants that have implemented surcharges to provide a living wage and medical benefits for their staff report that they've been able to reduce the levels of turnover that plague fast food franchises. Matthew Simmons's research stretches back decades into labor history, and he's found that historical increases in the minimum wage actually stimulate the economy. Studies have been done that show that, you know, some jobs will go away because of automation, things like that. But on the other hand, you know, raising the minimum wage also injects uh, more money into the economy, which can also grow businesses and grow jobs. So it's kind of one of these situations when you're making public policy, you know, there's not always a clear cut outcome. But I think on the whole, raising the minimum wage is beneficial, you know, to the economy and certainly to lower wage workers. So it's kind of both an economic issue and a moral issue at the same time. And that brings us back to the question, should the minimum wage be enough for someone to live on? It's this intersection between economic and moral factors that continues to motivate workers like Alex. As he's gained more experience as a labor organizer, he's come to believe that it's not that the system that he works in is broken, it's that the system is designed to breed scarcity. And that's basically the same mindset they're trying to keep us in, to be okay with struggling, to be okay with just having enough for one meal and bills. Anybody that doesn't believe that we deserve to have enough money to not only take care of bills, but to also generate real wealth, I feel like then they're lost. And it's our duty to end up showing them and educating them so that they can end up seeing that not only do we deserve but we also need a better way of living. And that goes beyond the minimum wage. Alex says he's continued to organize while working two jobs in order to carve out a better future for his family. He dreams of broad collective change, too. He's fighting to transform restaurant work into a viable career. We want to get a fair wage, but at the same time, we want to make sure that people are not sexualized at work. 
discriminated against, abused, uh, spoken down. We want to make sure that when you come to your job, it's not hell that you're walking into. It's not a place that you resent. We feel like if you come in to make a living, no matter what your job is, you deserve to come into a healthy workplace and not a messed up or toxic one. After Amendment 2 passed, the state Senate proposed a resolution designed to amend the minimum wage increase. Although the current language is vague, similar recent attempts excluded incarcerated people, employees with felony convictions, and all workers under the age of 21 from seeing the same benefits. Data show that these groups are already vulnerable to labor abuses. If it's approved in the state legislature, Floridians will vote on the resolution in the fall of 2022. A lot of people won't change in their life, but they don't believe that they're good enough to achieve it. So to show them that not only are you good enough, but you're better than what you get now. Gravy was reported and produced by Sarah Holtz. Sarah produces audio walks for Gesso Media, oral histories for New Orleans Public Radio, and has had her oral history work exhibited at the historic New Orleans Collection. Special thanks to Aquita Brown and Eugene Harrison. We thank Wendell Patrick for Gravy's theme music, Jazar for our donor music. Publisher for Gravy and all other SFA media is Mary Beth Lassiter. Olivia Terenzio provides additional editing. And Katie King checks our facts. Visit southernfoodways.org to learn more about the mission and work of the SFA. Great writing, compelling films, and intriguing stories from every corner of the South await. While you're there, consider becoming a member or making a donation. I'm Melissa Hall. And I'm Sarah Camp Milam. Excited to lap up another episode of Gravy? Tell a friend. Pass the gravy boat. There's plenty to go around.